This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, our guest is Dr. Jennifer Mueller, Associate Professor of Sociology and Director of the Intergroup Relations Program at Skidmore College. Dr. Mueller is an expert in race and racism, culture, knowledge and ignorance, social inequality, and critical pedagogy. She has a distinguished publication record with many articles on the reproduction of racial inequality with a focus on white dominance, white ignorance, and the limitations of colorblind racism theory. Jenny's 2017 article, Producing Colorblindness, Everyday Mechanisms of White Ignorance, published in Social Problems, won the 2019 Oliver Cromwell Cox Award from the ASA section on racial and ethnic minorities and the 2019 Kimberly Crenshaw Outstanding Article Award from the Society for the Study of Social Problems, Division of Racial and Ethnic Minorities. In this conversation, we focus on Mueller's recent paper with Diana Washington, Anticipating White Futures, the Ends-Based Orientation of White Thinking, published in Symbolic Interaction. The Maintenance of Structural Inequalities, White Ignorance, and Publicly Engaged Sociology. Our interview was recorded on April 5th, 2022. Stay with us. All right, uh, Jenny, thanks so much for being with us. That was a, a long introduction, but I followed your work for some time. I'm super excited to talk with you about your scholarship on the theory of racial ignorance, how white people and you know your, your studies on white students in particular both avoid and downplay and you know fail to address many dimensions of racial inequality and injustice in our society. So for those who may not know about your work, could you start with like a high-level overview? What kinds of questions are most important to you and how have you gone about trying to address them? Sure. First, I do want to thank you for inviting me to be here to talk with you. You've been very generous with your support of my work. I appreciate that so much. And I'm excited to be here, especially to talk about this new paper, which I think has gotten a little less attention as of yet. But my work generally, I would say I'm interested in understanding social reproduction, which is very, very high level social reproduction of the social order and the racial order in particular. But I think my work really tries to co-theorize material dimensions with symbolic and, and psychic kinds of dimensions. So I was trained in uh, structural race theories and systemic racism in particular. And so that was the focus of a lot of my early work. I um, do work on intergenerational wealth transmission. And what I'm really doing now is trying to bring together studies that look at how we're reproducing these material dimensions like wealth inequality to understand the sort of symbolic and psychological dimensions that undergird or interplay with that kind of reproduction. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, I was trained in structural race theories, but I draw a lot today on work from psychologists and philosophers and cultural sociologists. And I see myself as kind of bringing in that work to help retool critical theories of race to better account for the persistence of white dominance over time. So as I, you know, as I said, I find this work super fascinating. And one of the questions about reproduction is how do actually how do people reduce reproduce those inequities in ways that are that they're not either they're, either they're not fully conscious of or even if they are conscious of they downplay the significance of their own actions and contributions to those structures right so obviously in sociology people have talked about and tried to find ways to resolve the so-called structure agency debate and there are lots of mm -hmm. of scholars who have been working in that tradition and you know for interactionists, of which I count myself to be one, 
right? We, we think about how it is actually human action that uh, reproduces and sustains and supports the existing structures such that, you know, change is possible, but mm -hmm. the structure itself makes certain forms of action often that sustain that system the ones that are the easiest to think about, you know, that that's kind of like the path that's laid out for you. And when it comes to racial dominance, right, and, and white dominance, the complicity of kind of everyday action for white people is obscured. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, I'm a white person, and I'm sure there are many ways I contribute to racial domination um, that I don't think about consciously. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, you know, the, the taken for granted pathways in my life have been structured in a, a white dominant, white supremacist you know, system. So it's that my common sense is, is structured in that yes. way. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I also think one of the things that I really am attempting to do in my work is to highlight the effort that white people engage in to maintain both the material conditions of our dominance, but also the buffering psychology, right? Or, you know, what we're going to talk a, a lot about today, white ignorance, right? The, the mystification of what's happening um, in the midst of a lot of evidence that it's happening. And so, you know, when I think of how structural theories, especially the more contemporary ones, Eduardo de Bonilla Silva's work on racialized social systems, Joe Fagan's work on systemic racism and so forth. When I think about the, those theories emergence, a lot of what they were pushing back on was, and, and we're still pushing back on, right, are theories of racism that focus a lot on attitudes. And so, you know, they built these beautiful structural theories that really emphasize the importance of institutions, the importance of the structure of the society, how that does create these passive least resistance as you speak of, and then also how that conditions common sense. Um, but I, I think one of the things that can get lost in the structural theory is exactly what you're talking about, right? The ways in which we aren't just you know, habit alone is not enough to reproduce racism for white people, right? We have a lot of habits, and that's something we talk a lot about in this article that you were going to spend some time with today, anticipating white futures, that habit does a lot of the work, right? When we sort of internalize ways of being and um, ways of thinking. But the reality is, uh, as, as Eduardo Benio Silva talks in his work, right, contestation is the driving force of any racial system. And I think we tend to think of contestation on a very broad, large level, but there's a lot of contestation that happens in everyday life, just the empirical reality that we're confronting as white people. And so we need, in terms of if we're going to reproduce uh, our dominance, we need to have ways to sort of phenomenologically and cognitively push back on the information we're confronting so we can maintain the sort of willful ignorance that allows us to maintain the material conditions. And so I think, or one of the things I really think of my work trying to do is to expose the white agency involved and the white motive involved in what we do. And I don't mean that in a like hand rubbing together you know, kind of way, but just to say we are invested in our positions, right, materially, and we're invested in misunderstanding how all of this works psychologically. And so I want to expose the things that we do as white people to try and maintain those conditions. I mean, what you're saying reminds me of a, a couple of things. I mean, we had JT Thomas on the Annex a while back, and so folks can go back and listen to that episode. But one of the things that 
I asked him about was actually the question of really the misreading of kind of racial justice narratives that exist in our society. You know, one story that people hear is that when, when and if there is more racial equality and racial justice in our society, like everyone's going to benefit equally from that. And, and the thing that I asked JT about was, actually, that's probably not the case, right? So white people are going to have to give up things in terms of, of their dominant position, you know, their unearned advantages in order to actually make uh, room for previously excluded racialized minority groups, black folks and, and uh, Latinx folks and lots of other folks who have suffered systemic discrimination and, and racism in, in the past. So what I like about what you just said and it helps me think about is the stakes, mm-hmm. right? And the not only the material stakes, but also the psychic stakes of mm-hmm. losing, you know, what I'm now thinking about is the wages of whiteness, right? And white's privileged position or dominant position. Uh, the second thing, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your theory of racial ignorance. And before you talk about it, often people think about ignorance as if it's a lack, mm-hmm. you know, like it's a it's a black box or it's an empty space. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the interesting work for me out of the sociology of science and your work, you know, Charles Mill's work, other folks, is thinking about the actual productive work and the creation of ignorance, like these systematic, mm-hmm. the, way, the way ignorance is actually not something that we just don't know yet. Or, you know, we could discover if we had interest in doing so, but rather something that is actively created and sustained by a bunch of mechanisms of avoidance and minimization and so forth that has a lot of effects, you know, psychic and material at the individual and group levels that helps white people maintain their dominance and their um, supremacy in in our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... You know, one of the reasons I like the concept of ignorance, and I mean, when I I worked on this for a long time, and I talked to people about it, and people, you know, I would get different responses, like, aren't you talking about innocence? Or aren't you talking about this? You know, and one of the reasons I like ignorance as a concept is because it is kind of provoking, in a way, in that we assume in society, especially in these enlightenment-driven societies that are supposed to be built on rationality, right? We think of ignorance as a danger. And I mean, it is, depending on which standpoint you're looking from when we're talking about racial ignorance, right? We think of it as a, a source of weakness, right? And so to highlight ignorance really exposes the political dimensions of what's happening. It it really exposes that you know, and I guess there's different perspectives on this. It's it's true, right? We each construct our own social empirical realities, right? Out of the world that we encounter, we construct our ideas about what that reality represents to us. But I think it's fair enough to say, you know, in the context of any given society or given local context, right, that you can look at some truths and see that some truths are truer than others, that they are more robust explanations of empirical reality. And so for me, ignorance really exposes the way in which what's happening when you're talking about the ways that white people by and large learn to understand and interpret the world and the ways that marginalized racial groups learn to understand and interpret the world. And of course, we're painting in a very binaristic, broad brush way, but that the ways that we as white people learn to interpret the empirical facts before us are sometimes just really bad. 
They're not good explanations of reality. And again, it, that is part of what exposes the effort involved. So, you know, I use this very extreme example in the producing colorblindness paper, and people always react to it when I present it. But, you know, one of the students who's researching her family's intergenerational transmission of wealth she talks about this paper that I had to write about my family's wealth transmission was really hard. We didn't have any large ties to slavery or anything like that. And then literally just a couple of lines later, she says, my family did dabble in slavery until, you know, and she gives a date. And people always react to that line of we dabbled in slavery, right? So here's a person who doesn't have access to these stock storylines that a lot of people want to defer to. And then she gives a very creative kind of reasoning, but it's a bad reasoning. She basically says, like, look, here's how we know that these slaves weren't a part of my family's wealth. And she gives this explanation about, you know, slaves were allowed to leave my family following the Civil War. And if they weren't, if we had really counted on them for our wealth, then we wouldn't have allowed them to leave if they were such an indispensable part of our wealth. And so that proves that they weren't. Now, you know, you can step away from that and go, okay, that's just like bad reasoning on some level, right? But for her, it helps sort of insulate this comforting explanation. And so that's a dramatic example. But again, I think, you know, why I like ignorance as a concept is because it really emphasizes that it isn't just like our epistemologies are like producing equally good interpretations of reality. And it's like, you know, you're going to err on the side of the one that reflects your interests most, right? But white people have to develop interpretations of reality that are actually pretty wildly distorted sometimes in order to maintain the insulation. So again, it exposes that effort involved and that agency and investment involved. And of course, you know, it goes to great depth. So I think there's not just, you know, these extreme kinds of examples, but also lots of progressive white examples of the ways that we interpret reality that are also distorted and also allow us to sort of maintain a sense of ourselves as good people in the midst of continuing to hoard resources and sort of maintain a comfortable psychology about it. I mean, that's a fascinating story. Just to briefly recap, so this is this is a student, just to make sure I'm understanding, this is a student who wrote about her family's engagement with enslavement, and she looked at her history and found that her family actually, who were enslavers, they enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And she downplays the significance of this in her own family's amassing wealth in this very strange way by saying that if they, these enslaved people were so essential to her family's maintenance of their wealth, then they wouldn't have been freed once the Civil War was decided. Yeah. And, you know, the Americans won. Yeah. And part of that winning since the war was about slavery and enslavement. <laughs> this is one of the great, if you haven't read this article, folks, you definitely should, because there are, are a bunch of examples of, you can talk about them as like very twisted and contorted kinds of ways of reasoning that are really like pretzel shaped, but but come out in a way like almost uniformly that downplay the significance of racism and white dominance in the accumulation of family wealth and the intergenerational transfer of that wealth, but also make it easier for white folks to feel better about their own situation and maintain a sense that, you know, they're not racist. Mm -hmm. You know, not actively participating in or benefiting from the structure of domination and the really explicit decisions that were made that maintain that dominance. Yeah. 
And maybe pivoting to sort of connect a little bit to what I think of as a different but companion empirical analysis that Diana Washington and I present in the anticipating white futures behavior. Here, we're looking specifically at practical knowledge. We're looking to the practical takeaways that students offer after they've done this family research where they examine the intergenerational transmission of wealth, usually find a lot of evidence of ways that they benefited from practices and policies in place that allow white people to hoard wealth, and um, then are reconciling with that. And so we wanted to know specifically, okay, what are the practical takeaways? Like, what does this make them want to do? And, and we focus specifically in this paper, not on students like who are like, hey, we had slaves and that didn't matter. We're focusing on the students who are saying specifically, they sort of accept the reality of racism in the family history. They concede that reality, you know, and they write analysis about the family as being connected. So, so they're not dubious about whether they are connected to this history of white supremacy, right? Like they're accepting that. But what we find is that it doesn't translate into a lot of practical insights in terms of what they think should happen. And that even when it does, they develop some contortion to sort of reason their way out of accountability. But one of the points I want to respond to in something you just said, which is that, you know, we're always looking to maintain this comfortable psychic reality. The truth of the matter is that a lot of the students in this particular analysis, they don't actually seem terribly disturbed about this reality of systemic racism. I mean, that's one of the themes that we write about we, we call this theme steady state, where students are like, yes, racism is real, the end. That's kind of like their practical takeaway. And for some, you know, there's some emotional resonance of that. They're like, this is really disappointing, but it's real, the end. But then there's quite a few students who simply are like, yeah, this is what's going on, but they don't seem to be particularly disturbed by it. They don't seem to, they definitely don't seem like they feel like things need to be different. And we discussed that for these students, they just take for granted an intergenerational horizon of white domination that is not troubling. And I I think about Bourdieu here, you know, Bourdieu and his work talked about how, you know, there's this taken for granted realm of doxa where you know, when that gets disrupted, that people want to straighten their opinion to restore some kind of taken for reality again. And we argue that for these students, there's no opinion that even needs to be straightened. They don't even recognize their reality as threatened. (laughs) They don't even recognize this as disturbing or disruptive information. And I think that's important to mention too, that we have the ability to sort of be so, I guess, in the haze of white fantasy, that even when you're getting confronting information, it's not disruptive. And then we have the ability as uh, thinkers and feelers and and so forth, that when our reality is disrupted, that we can sort of repair and restore it to something that feels comfortable again. And we see students doing both of those things in the study. This is what's so great about the study. And I mean, I think it challenges one of the really central, your findings anyway, challenge one of the central pillars work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion complex, that there is an easy and necessary connection between increasing knowledge of history and, the, and structural racism and institutional racism and how things like 
redlining and residential segregation and obviously enslavement and the end of the first reconstruction, Jim and Jane Crow laws and all kinds of policies and practices in our society result in unjust benefits for white Americans over black Americans mostly. And the assumption there is if we give students that knowledge or if we do a diversity training, for example, and we highlight the systemic barriers that racialized minority groups often face in the workplace and all kinds of institutions in life, that the result of that will be some kind of enlightenment on the part of people who are in white folks who are in positions of power and authority, and then they'll change their behavior. I mean, I think your findings really challenge that in a fundamental way with your sample here. Yeah, I think too, like those folks who adhere to structural theories of racism, we talk a lot about the fact that education can't cure racism, right? That these are material systems that, you know, the only way to sort of change how the thinking occurs is to change how the system is ordered. But I think to your point, this there's just a tremendous resilience to the idea that we can use education to get us out of this intractable system. And on some level, I understand that to the extent that, you know, if you're talking about reworking the structural order, that's that's a tall order, whereas turning to educational solutions, that seems like, you know, within reach. And I also think it, it is just, there's something parsimonious about that idea for most people, right? Like, oh, I didn't understand this thing. And now if I understand it, like surely it will change how I behave. And I think, you know, to your point that we're talking about social epistemologies that have intergenerational force, have the force of a lot of material resources behind them, and that we have just an unbelievable institutional infrastructure that helps keep it in place, right? And so you know, trying to counter that with a course here or there, or, you know, a diversity workshop, like, obviously, that's not up to the task. And then we know on top of that, that these courses and workshops, they're often sort of anemic in the information that they provide as well, right, that there's ways in which there can be a lot of white comforting and that goes on even in those kind of spaces where we're trying to confront these realities. But I think another point that's important to make is that, you know, uh, we write at the end of the article, we talk about the work of Derek Bell. And one of the things he writes in his great book that a lot of us have probably read, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, he talks about white domination existing as an open secret, he calls it. So I think, you know, again, this ignorance piece, one of the things it's really important to emphasize is that this isn't a passive ignorance, right? As Charles Mill said, like, this isn't just like people sitting around. This is a militant ignorance. This is an ignorance that fights back. Charles Mill's great words in his essay, White Ignorance, right? That it's an armed ignorance, if you will. And so, you know, I think the ignorance is a pursuit in the same way, or at least in the companion way, as ability to hoard resources is a pursuit. Those two things hang on one another, right? And that we can't assume the passivity of our not knowing, even though our worlds are set up to make it appear that you know, we're just sort of caught up in these paths of least resistance, or we're just caught up in, you know, the habitus of of our world, the way that the field is organized, right? And that actually, 
there is, as as Bell writes, a knowing but unspoken alliance to racism amongst white people, right? That we have a way of sort of knowing and not knowing at the same time. And the reason we know that we know on some level is because we fight so hard to maintain it. <laughs> That's really the piece of it, right? That knowing about racism is what makes it valuable to us on some level. Knowing about these literal benefits that we enjoy as a result of Black subordination and white supremacy, that we, even if we have only a dim understanding of that, that that is what nurtures our allegiance to the racial status quo. And so this idea that we are completely unawares is not true, right? We have the capacity to bring it to our awareness and that when we sit in these courses or we sit in these workshops where we're learning this information, that actually can have the effect of reinforcing our understanding of our dominance. And I think, you know, it might be a little bit of a stretch to say that's what's happening in the students' data in this paper and what the students offer. But I do think it's true. You kind of see a way in which, again, it's just understood, like, of course, I'm going to maintain this reality and that we have students who, beyond not being disturbed by the things that they're finding, they will go on to say, like, this is what I'm going to continue doing. And they will sometimes do it in really contorted ways. So in one example in the paper of a student who, again, is conceding the reality of racism or family history, she talks about how disappointing that is to her because she's probably going to unconsciously reproduce these patterns, which of course, there's a paradox there because how do you unconsciously reproduce patterns that you've just said you know about. But then she literally goes on to say how it's going to happen. I'm probably going to do this. I'm probably going to do that. You know, so she gives us a little bit of a list of what she's planning to do, right? And so you can see in that kind of example that there's this liminal space between knowing and not knowing at the same time that's happening. And that, again, you know, ironically, or there is research that suggests that when you reinforce to people what the sort of benefits of racism is, that actually can have a way of reproducing or reinforcing our solidarity as a collective to that system. Yeah, I was, I'm glad you went there because I was going to make the point that it seems like the research on these diversity training sessions, if they are done in the way they're typically done, which is short-term, lack of follow-up, lack of good quality, is that it does seem to reproduce some of the, you know, some of the stereotypes, but also the idea that white folks are in a position of dominance, you know, almost because that's either the natural order of things mm-hmm. or because it's kind of reinforces like meritocracy ideology that, well, if it's the case that so many people of color are in disadvantaged positions, that must be because of their inherent merit relative, instead of the very systemic disadvantages that the diversity trainings are intended to highlight, which Mm is just some more evidence. Uh, I thought your example in the paper of Melanie, a young woman who, this is a pseudonym, obviously, who comes from a, a wealthy white family is a great example of this. And this may be the person that you were talking about. Here's a, a person who comes from, again, a, a wealthy family, knows about intergenerational wealth transfer that is, is racialized and the, the way she's benefited from white dominance. And then she talks about her future and how her family, like when she has children and when she raises them, they're going to benefit from all these things. And you know they're going to move into a nice leafy suburb with great schools 
that are supported by property taxes of other white families. And at that point, she's going to teach her kids the way things should be, which of course is, you know, decades into the future, right? Versus what she might be otherwise interested in working on now. Yeah, so Melanie is a little different. So that the other student that I was describing, we put her in a theme we call racist. So like, she's a person who's saying like, I'm definitely going to reproduce these things. It's going to be unconscious. It's really unfortunate that it's happening. Melanie is in a category we call interventionist. And these are students who complete the research and their practical takeaway is that like something should be happening to um, remediate this. But What we find amongst the interventionist takeaways is that very rarely are they personal. So very, very few students say, I feel personally responsible to do something about that. Only maybe three students out of 105 say that. But they go on and they sort of diffuse the ways they think that should be happening. So Melanie, the student that you're talking about, she creates a kind of perplexing takeaway. She uh, talks about how the ways that her family gained wealth and power made her upset. She acknowledges that there are still problems and that her family is still contributing to colorblind racism. But then she pivots uh, into what we call an almost magical confidence to describe how her family was, quote, making every effort to move forward and to help make this world a less discriminating place to live. And and I if if I could indulge and, and just share the quote, because I do think it's pretty powerful to making the point that you're offering here. She writes, I know our racism is not on purpose, and that is why I know we that we will make a positive impact on the march to equality. I think that with the wealth and capital that we've obtained over the years, we will use it in ways that will help for the better. Learning the knowledge that I'm learning in my classes will help me to teach my children the way things should be in hopes that they will be able to use their wealth for the good of others. I feel like my family is a great example of each generation changing to make the next generation a better one. So she really just creates this fantasy reality of what's going to happen. You know, we sort of point out the paradox that by her own evidence and her own analysis, her family is in fact a great example of the mechanisms that maintain white power and privilege and wealth, which she concedes. But she projects an alternative reality for the family that's defined by their progressive anti-racism. And so, you know, the effect of this psychologically is that from the unconscious racism of the past and the current generations through this like projected anti-racism of a future generation, she's enshrined the morality of the whole intergenerational family in perpetuity. And that's, again, a pretty, that's a lot of work in a, in a tiny little statement, right? To sort of enshrine this intergenerational reality where, yeah, they have the things that they have, but also they're on the right side of things. It, it's in the same way that there's a dis- clear distortion, as with the student I described who, you know, talked about her, why slavery was an important part of her family's history even though here we have a student who's like, yes, this is a big part of my family's wealth, she still finds a way to sort of buffer and insulate from that. And that has practical consequences, which is a key point that we want to make in this paper, that cognition takes place in a field where we are anticipating always the futures that lay before us and that our cognition comes into the work of these anticipated futures rather than just unfolding from the mental ideas that we have in our head. 
mean, this this student story reminds me of Victor Ray and Louise Seamster's paper against teleology. Like Melanie's story seems to be like things are getting progressively better and better. Uh, maybe the implication of that is the horizon of racial justice is ever receding, mm-hmm. right? That that yeah. You know, since we're <laughs> since we're on the march, we can affirm that we are good white people mm-hmm. who are using our our wealth and our privilege however we gained it, mm-hmm. right? For the good of all people, mm-hmm. which itself is kind of a colorblind statement, but we get credit for being on for being on the path. Yeah. And so, you know, my children are going to be in a better place, even though, of course, like, that's not how it works. And I, I think you know, many, many scholars would say every time there is, or many times when there is some sort of so-called racial progress, you must always be looking for the backlash, mm-hmm. right? And sort of the retrenchment. And so I think that that kind of theory has been empirically supported over the last five plus years in the United States, mm-hmm. even recently with you know the summer 2020 protests over police killings, unarmed black Americans, you know, and then a spate of laws, for example, that would criminalize certain aspects of gathering and protesting and then indemnify people who run those protesters over with their with their cars. Mm-hmm. In any case, it's a fascinating story and evidence for your argument. Yeah. Again, this is about practical accomplishment, or at least laying the groundwork for the practical achievement of maintaining white dominance, right? And so I think your observation of the ever receding, the way in which, you know, our cognition can imagine an ever receding uh, space of racial justice, right? That's part of what sort of keeps this intergenerational logic in motion. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I would say too, like, from the producing colorblindness piece, I mean, one of the questions I sometimes get asked is like, so if you continue making ignorance hard for white people, right, does our ignorance ever evolve? And I think, you know, like, this is a philosophical question on some level. But yes, I think the reality is like, we can, there's no point where it's like, you know, we can't twist our thinking, right, to maintain the denial that we want to, right, that you can't necessarily force that forward, that we have an incredible capacity to create new distortions, even as they might accommodate information, right? And so I think that's part of what's pretty powerful about this paper, again, is because it emphasizes the students who aren't trying to resist the reality of systemic racism. And I think this is part of what should give us pause too in this particular historical moment. I mean, arguably, right, we're in this moment, uh, you mentioned the the summer 2020 uprising. I mean, I can tell in the course of teaching, I mean, I've been teaching now for, gosh, like coming up on 20 years. And, you know, I'm sure you noticed too, right? Our students, they come into our classrooms, or at least the students I teach, they come into my classroom, they know a lot more about racism than they ever have in the course of my career, right? And we know that we're still in a lot of the mess that we're in. And so the assumption that we can progressively raise consciousness and that that will be the corrective is incorrect. And as you point out, right, that Part of, I think, what we're seeing now is that is a retrenchment against the racial knowing on some level with all of these bans taking place against CRT. We can argue, of course, their political means as well, their ways to mobilize bases and under the threat of what's happening to the children and so on and so forth. 
But they're also on some level, right, they will have the effect or can have the effect of dulling the knowing that has emerged in the past decade or so amongst white people in particular. I mean, I think what you just said on the way that ignorance shifts and moves is completely consistent with some of those CRT folks who say that racism has, mm -hmm. you know, many guises and many forms. Yeah. And so even though you see legal victories, so to speak, that there are many crafty ways that white dominance reasserts itself. I did want to say one more thing about, about this paper. I mean, we could talk a lot more about it. I was really struck by the white students who expressed gratitude yeah. for their privileged position. I mean, you know, and maybe you put these folks in the racist praxis frame, but it was just so striking to me that after learning about how their family's relative position of privilege and wealth, whatever that might have been, and its its embeddedness in this structure of, of white supremacy and white dominance, their reaction to that was not, wow, maybe the ideology of meritocracy has some flaws, or maybe the system is not colorblind, or maybe, you know, I'm living in a white supremacist, you know, is <laughs> what bell hooks would say a white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy, right. right? And like, and actually, that's unjust. Right. And so if I am committed to like basic like liberal principles, like fundamental liberal right. principles, like, you know, actual equality, <laughs> and, you know, actual liberty, as opposed to like, the, the those forms that reproduce racial dominance, I ought to be concerned about mm -hmm. that. But instead they say, I'm just so, this is the blessed. So I, you know, I teach at a Christian yeah. university. And so you know, blessed is a word that oh, we, yeah. people use oh, here. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, their reaction to this is to say, I'm blessed and therefore like I'm grateful and thankful. Yeah. As if knowing that one is privileged is all that's required. And by privileged, I mean, I am the recipient of unfair advantages in virtue of my racial status and being a member of the racially dominant group. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, these, these are like the students that I was speaking to before, right? The students who there isn't a disruption. This information that systemic racism is something they benefit from is not, it does not disturb their moral universe, I guess you could say. What disturbs them most is like, oh, I didn't know about this. And now what I need to do is try to offer more gratitude for all these ways. And, and I have to say as much as I, um, try not to be demeaning or diminishing of my students who I work with and who I know are offering their sincere thinking. I do think some of the ways they talk about this gratitude were disturbing to me and Diana at times, right? Like, you know, to say, I feel really humbled to hear all the ways that I've benefited from racism. I used to think of myself as not spoiled, and now I'm not going to think of myself that way. I acknowledge, I, like, racial privilege is somehow I'm spoiled in the world, right? You know, or just to talk about how interesting, you know, I feel so enlightened by this information. I find it so interesting, you know, when I'm sitting there reading it and thinking, yeah, like there's a lot of suffering that happens on the other side of all of this resource hoarding that you're talking about. But that's just not even part of what's on their radar at all. And that for them, again, you know, there is a, for some white people, there's a lot of value to racial knowing. You know, I hear this a lot from students that I work with. It's like, they don't want to be caught ignorant, especially right now in this current historical moment. Like, they want to know the information. And I always say, okay, for what? Mm -hmm. 
right? Like, it's great to want to know. But again, that resilience of, of belief that if I know, that's going to be the curative, right? That is just deeply sort of structured into how white people think about the world. It's, it's a hard thing to, to counter. And that for some people, the knowing itself is a sign of their morality, even if nothing else in their world changes, right? Oh, sure. I think we could probably talk about maybe people or groups that we know who who seem to believe that if they simply do the internal work of knowing more about maybe not even their own family history with, with racism and intergenerational wealth transfer, but if they just knew more about the civil rights movement or specific like leaders in the black freedom struggle and the black power movement, that that would, that would make them a good white person, for example. And therefore they would yeah. translate that into, I don't know, being kinder to, to people or something yeah. like that. I think it's worth mentioning too. We we don't talk about it as much in this paper, but I think about, I love Tressie McMillan's book, Thick, and the chapter on Know Your Whites. And obviously there's other folks who talk about the ways in which white people, we do a lot of our identity-based work relative to one another. <laughs> and that this collective of knowing whites who know about systemic racism, right? And then uh, use what they, who they see as like the problematic whites or conservative whites or these people who are resisting CRT bans are evil and this and that, right? Like a lot of what happens in those moments, right, is the way in which we're constructing our sense of white identity relative to these other groups. And that is an important political mechanism as well to keep our eyes on the way in which conservative whites are constructing their identities relative to more progressive whites and vice versa. And that that's part of where these knowledge desires may come from, right? As a way of demonstrating your better white morality relative to these other groups. Yeah, to totally. Some virtue signaling there. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, in this paper, you're arguing that these discursive maneuvers are pragmatic responses to knowledge that would, if students took their political, social, and moral responsibilities seriously, like lead to significant social change. I mean, if they actually translated this knowledge into some kind of advocacy and action towards policies like reparations, affirmative action, other forms of wealth, income, and status redistribution. And that's really uncomfortable, right? I mean, even unthinkable. This is where I think this particular paper and the theory of racial ignorance meet up, right, in terms of how these white students are defending their ignorance as a way of defending their position in the racial hierarchy. Is that is that right? Um, can you say that? Is what right? <laughs> uh, That's a good question. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm just thinking, like, you know, getting to the anticipated futures and, like, the stakes of this, right? Maybe mm -hmm. coming back to that, actually. So if students took this knowledge and then mm -hmm. the next logical step is to say okay now that i have this knowledge what do i do with it so if they were to take their political social and moral responsibilities seriously they would actually be advocates and even activists for things like reparations affirmative action other forms of wealth income and status redistribution but one of the reasons that they don't is under your theory racial ignorance and defending that because to advocate for those things is like literally unthinkable because the future that is in mind is one of continued racial privilege. Is that right? Yeah, I think sometimes that's right. I mean, I think for some students, it really is unthinkable, but I think it can be a bit more complicated in that it might be thinkable, 
but in only a particular form. So let me make it more concrete so it makes more sense what I'm saying. I'm thinking in my head and I'm translating it, right? So I'm thinking, for example, of a lot of people notice that Evanston, Illinois passed a reparations bill or what was touted as a reparations bill, yeah. right? And obviously to be able to do something like that, you have to have a lot of white support for something like that. So there are white people out there supporting certain things. But when you look at the way the, that this policy was actually crafted, right, this was taking taxpayer money and that money would be going to support home ownership amongst Black Americans in Evanston. But that money is not going into Black Americans' hands. That money is going to banks. It's going into mortgages, right? And so it would seem to be a sort of classic case of interest convergence mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. right? That you have a case where, okay, this appears to be a progressive policy. And I don't mean to like just crap on it, right, as irrelevant, but it's not reparations. It's a form of um, redistribution that I guess would seem thinkable, uh, to use the words that you offered before amongst white people, like, oh, it's thinkable to redistribute my wealth in this way, but it's unthinkable to distribute in a way that will actually put quote unquote, my money into the hands of black Americans or something like that. So I think we have to bring nuance to the way that we um, use the theory to make sense of these things, right? Because it's, it's about, uh, as you were saying, the sort of regressive future of racial injustice, like it's, it's evolving, it's dynamic, it's responsive to the kind of pushback that you're getting in the moment or the crises that white people have to respond to in order to sort of quell the resistance that we encounter, whether that resistance is happening in a interpersonal, interactional way or that resistance is having happening in, in this sort of collective way. So it's about, you know, evolving our thinking in a way that still maintains this intergenerational horizon where we still are the ones on top, even if we are making concessions, right, in favor of other people. That's really what it's about is maintaining that hierarchy. I mean, I do, you know, some people do argue, like I think of the work of um, Megan Burke and others, right? We don't have a reality not defined by white domination in our consciousness. We don't have any experience with that. There's no intergenerational cellular memory of something like that, right? And so it's true, like creative thinking is harder to do. It requires more cognitively to do that. But then you add the weight of what's hanging in the balance for people uh, materially. And that's really where it's like, okay, it's not to say we couldn't do the creative work, uh, if we were willing to put in the effort to do that. But I think that's where you get down to the sort of um, core matter that you offer when you ask the question, which is that, that that is unthinkable. The racial order being totally upended is pretty unthinkable for most of us. Most of us. I don't want to I don't want to act like there's not people out there trying to dream up new worlds and act into those new worlds. There are. And that's actually something I'm I'm really interested in examining more now. But I think for the most of us, yeah, that's just not it's not on the radar. I mean, I think that's really helpful. I mean, I, I probably should have said it's thinkable, but not comfortable, <laughs> uncomfortable, <laughs> just as a separate category. And then unthinkable kind of depending on or like thinkable within bounds yeah maybe, right you know right. like a bounded type of thinking it's thinkable to a degree yeah. that doesn't require me to like sure. get off from the top spot you know yeah mm -hmm. yeah 
but asking for some people, you know, right, right, asking hard questions about the overall structure of racial dominance and risking whites' position at the top of that hierarchy. Yeah, you know, is uncomfortable for many. Not everyone, yeah, I but think, for many. I think these are. I was going to use the word fun, but maybe that doesn't sound right. That. that... I, I say fun only from a standpoint of a nerd who's like, oh, these are fun empirical questions. But the, I think, you know, what you're offering, like it is empirical to, it, these are empirical questions to see, okay, how far can you push white thinking, right? What are the bounds of it, you know, and how do those bounds shift depending on who you're talking about? Because we're not a monolith, of course. And, you know, part of what we were sort of speaking to just a moment ago is to understand, you know, that the ways that white people manifest our ignorance and our practical behavior, it looks different, right? And so I think seeing how you can stretch the bounds and use these kinds of breaching exercises or breaching modalities to push people to see, okay, what actually is thinkable? Under what conditions are they thinkable? I mean, there's great work being done even by experimental social psychologists who are testing things like this, where they look at like, okay, white people will accept contemporary reality as long as they can sort of rework what they understand about what historical reality means, like literally will recontort their understanding of history so that they can make the present knowledge, you know, thinkable. I think there's a lot to be mined in there empirically for researchers. That is a, I think you're totally right. That's a nice segue to my final question before we do a little little banter, which I'm always looking forward to. Okay. So, Jenny, what are you working on now? Oh, what am I working on now? Well, you know, it's funny. So this work on white ignorance, that was not originally what I started working on. I started working on intergenerational wealth transmission. And so I'm actually returning to a book that sort of uh, looks specifically at how families acquire and pass assets intergenerationally. So I'm looking at racialized wealth inequality and writing a book that examines what I talk about as inheritance pathways. So that instead of talking about how just how people are making sense of this information, the students are making sense of this information, I'm looking at the actual material dimensions of wealth transfer within families and how historical policies change the trajectories of family histories in, in really explicit ways. So I'm looking at, for example, how a student like Melanie's family might have acquired assets and how that's literally showing up in Melanie's life today. So that's a, a book that I'm working on. I'm also working on a project with Victor Ray. So it's tentatively titled The Racial Structure of Sociological Thought. It's an edited volume. And what we're really taking up in this book is we're trying to push away a little bit from the focus on racial theory and the ways that racial theory has obscured or illuminated the problem of racism to really tackle all of the subfields or many of the subfields in the discipline to look at how those subfields have developed and how the way that those subfields were shaped and the theories that became prominent or canonical subfields like urban sociology, environmental sociology, sociology of religion, how those really operate around obscuring structural racism, obscuring racism as structural matter, and generating forms of racial ignorance that are stamped with the legitimacy of formal knowledge production. So we're working on an edited volume on that. And then I guess 
So I'm starting to turn my attention more now to embodiment. There's great work by people like Sarah Ahmed who talk about the sort of phenomenological dimensions of white domination. But I'm I'm turning my attention more to what some people refer to as embodied social justice. And I, I just enrolled in an embodied social justice program. It's a, a three-month course, so I'm going to be the student this time. I'm looking forward to that. But the focus here is looking at how, one, how our bodies are brought into the work of domination, right? How there's a lot of trauma held in our bodies, that there's a lot of these intergenerational dimensions that are are rooted in us and in our bodies. And that part of the work that we need to do, right, is to sort of understand and come back to the body as a way of transforming how we approach the work of racial justice and racial liberation. So, you know, there's a spiritual dimension often to this work. And so I'm, I'm interested in it personally, but I'm also, I'm, I'm interested in it as an educator. I'm also interested in thinking of the ways in which this forms a type of sort of uh, social movement that centers in a, uh, what might appear to be a personal practice, right? Or a personal experience of embodiment but that the people who engage in this work understand it as a collective action. So I'm, I'm really excited to delve more into that work. I've been doing some reading too on the folks who are engaged in what's called pleasure activism. And the idea that if we make the case, right, or if we make it possible for people to understand that there is pleasure in resistance, that there is something other than just this deep investment in material domination, right? That there actually are things to be gained from resisting racism, resisting heteropatriarchy, from engaging in imaginary new worlds and trying to build those that um, we can draw a lot on what is pleasurable to us. And to get in touch with what's pleasurable to us, we have to get back in touch with the body. So there's linkages there. Yeah. So that's that's, that's so some, cool. I know there's I, it, it sounds maybe a little hippy dippy and I don't know if I'm doing a good job translating it to people who are listening, but it's occupying a lot of my brain power and body power these days in great ways. I mean, I had I, it's so funny you mentioned uh, pleasure activism. I just learned about that maybe like at the very beginning of this calendar year. And to me, it's like, it's very striking to think about all of the movements that, you know, they're focused on injustice, they're focused on, you know, all these terrible things that that we live with. Um, and of course, that impact people in, in various ways, uh, and trauma and pain and oppression and suffering, and all of those things. But, you know, I was thinking the classic quote, I guess, from Emma Goldman is like, I don't want to be a part of your movement if I can't dance. Yes. You know, yeah. there, there, there is like, and I think some social movement scholars have chronicled this, like um, Summers Epler, right, has that Laughing Saints book, which I'm totally not remembering the title of correctly right now. But just, and this is, I think, a point that CRT people, or Derek Bell makes, right, that even though racism is permanent, you know, that doesn't mean that you just throw up your hands and walk away. It means that you form solidarity with people who are engaged in that struggle. And the benefit of doing that and being together is that you know who your allies are and you know who you're relying for support. And like, this is hard, but that doesn't mean like you're always talking about how 
terrible and oppressed your life is, like black joy is a thing and it's mm -hmm. something to be celebrated even in the midst of oppression and suffering. So you've just moved pleasure activism like a little higher in yeah. my in my reading queue. So I appreciate that for sure. I think too, like, uh, so like I said, I just started this course and one of the teachers, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, she's a Black Zen Buddhist teacher. Um, she's one of the organizers for this course. But one of the things she said in class the other day, she said, if we weren't disembodied, we wouldn't be able to tolerate what's going on. And her point there was that, again, these systems we exist in, these dehumanizing system, which even as we, as white people or as people who will dominate identities, we enjoy a lot of benefits. There is a dehumanization happening, right? There's a way in which yeah. we too are harmed by these systems. And so, you know, part of what our, what we need to do, and I guess what my own evolution is taking me to is to, is to try and think about how do we put that, for lack of a better term, spiritual question in front of people, right? Or, or a spiritual understanding that like, this isn't all there is for us, right? And that literally our planet, like the survival of our species really relies on us waking up to and becoming embodied again so that we can reconnect to our humanity, including the humanity that connects us all as people, right? You know, Joe Fagan talks about how systemic racism is built on alienating racist relations, right? That it divides us literally and that we, again, just to sort of accept that as the price of admission, I guess, as white people and that there's a great deal of disembodiment, meaning that we are not attuned to our embodied spiritual self, right? And that that can be a thing that we may wish to work toward that might make it more thinkable to give up some of these self-deluding practices and these practices where we build worlds where we are very segregated, where we don't have to deal with the empirical reality of suffering and so forth, that like we can do better than this and we can do better than this in community with other people. And that's what I really see these embodied social justice communities really working toward is how do we, how do we get embodied together, recognizing all the ways that power divides us? How do we sort of work through the ways in which discomfort arises? How do we work through all the ways in which the conflict that is deep intergenerational, historical, a part of our deep consciousness, how do we find our way back to each other? on some really core level. I know that might sound, you know, not befitting for a, a structural theorist of racism to talk about, but really like as a person in the world, when I think about like how I got into this work to begin with and where I think it's taking me now, that's really what it boils down to. How yeah. do we find ourselves, uh, how do we find our way back to each other? Yeah. And back to ourselves. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the points I try to make in my sociology class is that in my intro classes is just that, we often think that we are living in like separate worlds and that we are, our groups are separable from others, whether that's our, uh, our work communities or our family life or our whatever faith commitment community we have. You know, our, our university is separate from the town that it exists in and so forth. But of course, all of us are continuous with our environment on a personal and as a organizational, yeah. you know, institutional level, right? And so the boundaries that we make, are, are there, you know, but they are not hard and fast barriers right. between 
one thing and, and another. Like, they're actually points of contact. Yeah. Is another way to put it is that they're actually points of contact. Yeah. So, yes. I mean, and is... that's, that's the fundamental anti-essentialist stance, too, right? It's the fundamental anti-essentialist stance to understand. Again, and this is not to diminish, right, the, the deep suffering the violence, right, done in the name of, of white supremacy, right, and, and that we can expect to continue, right, for some time, and that we have to stand up against and resist. But on some basic level, right, we are, it is not our nature to be disconnected as people, and that finding our way back to that is the most important thing we can do. All right, well, Ginny Mueller, thanks so much for your time. This has been an uh, amazing simulating conversation. And I'm super excited to help share your work uh, with our audience here on the Annex. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, we are back with uh, our classic banter section. And so there's lots of things happening related to, Jenny, your work and your expertise. I don't know for a fact that you teach critical race theory, but that is a uh, <laughs> that is a current topic of controversy. And before we started recording, I did say that my students were really interested in CRT and my social theory class. And so I did take a little time out to talk with them about it. But I wonder, how do you think about the, the so-called controversy over CRT or really the backlash against teaching, especially in public K-12, but also in colleges, public colleges and universities? Um, teaching any kind of you know what many would say is accurate history of of race and, mm -hmm. and white supremacy and racism in in the united states how are you thinking about the, these controversies from your position as a scholar in these areas yeah i mean you know i think there's different angles to approach it like the more cynical angle is to understand them as political tools right to mobilize people around imagined threats that's a that's kind of straight out of the playbook i mean, and it's i think right. you can you know see the meaning of that when you see where these conflicts are erupting right like from i think of even here in saratoga springs where skidmore college is located it's a predominantly white community so there's not a lot of explicit racial conflict between groups here but it's it's totally preoccupied the local school board right it's become a, really? a bone of contention there's been a there's been yeah a lot of hostility at the public board of education meetings right despite the fact that the sort of threat or antagonism isn't even really present in the way you might expect it would be to get people so riled up so i think you know it does expose that Politically, it's a, a useful tool to mobilize people and to create a sense of outrage and suffering or victimization, right, to white people. But I think, too, the idea that one of the claims I find most I don't know if disturbing, disturbing doesn't, seems too strong of a term because how do you, how do you be disturbed when, you know, this is part of the milieu of what we encounter every day as people doing this work. But I think the idea that critical race theory is essentialist is particularly um, egregious to me, right? Because the whole theory is designed to expose, right, that the systems we exist in are what have shaped us, but that it's not an essential part of our nature, right? That it is the case of CRT proper, that the, the legal structure has created, right? White interests has reinforced those with the power of law, 
and justice and that, you know, were it not for that, we might be back to a different way of engaging with one another. And so, <laughs> yeah, I think for me, I always thought of critical right. race theory as actually exposing to me that race is not essential to our being, not essential to our biology for sure, but also not essential to our nature. And so I think, you know, to lose that piece of the teaching is one of the, the most concerning things on some level. I mean, it, it just strikes me as you're talking about this, that this, this is one of those like fear-based strategies. And as you say, like whose feelings or whose sensibility is being protected. But there also seems to be using children or mobilizing the tropes of childhood in terms of innocence. And you want to protect those children from any kind of information that might be yeah. disturbing to them. I mean, there's, I don't know if this is a stretch, but it seems related to the QAnon phenomenon, right? I mean, the idea that in terms of the child molesting stuff, right? So You're right. like many people are concerned about child molestation and child abuse. Like that's a real thing and right. it's a real problem, right? But, right. you know, using children as a vehicle to shut down, prohibit or chill or silence accurate yeah. instruction around our nation's racial history you know, in some ways, it's like a wickedly ingenious move because you don't, no one wants to be against the healthy development of children. Right. But it also partakes in that, you know, us versus them fear response that mobilizes a lot of people. So if we know who we're against, we don't have to really think so much about what we're for. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I, I, the other thing, the other part about it is just the way that the campaigns on the legislative level seem to be highly coordinated out of some mm -hmm. of the favorite frequent flyers in terms of pushing policies that are regressive in, in a lot yeah. of ways, whether that's ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, or you know the, the connections with other groups and very, very wealthy, deep-pocketed political actors. Um, yeah. You know, there's the other connection here, which would be about the effort, the long-term efforts to reduce the legitimacy and trust in public institutions and the public sphere more generally. So taking what used to be understood as public goods that everyone contributed to because those were important to the health and vitality and flourishing of not only individuals, but also neighborhoods and communities and really public citizenship and political membership, right? As you teach people, you know, what it means to participate in a democracy, how to have a civil conversation to exchange views, not with the, the goal of like dominating someone or, you know, scoring cheap points or owning the libs or whomever, but uh, rather to seek a reasoned solution or reasoned accommodation to, to disagreements in a in a democratic yeah. society, right? But yeah. one that is increasingly multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and hopefully more democratic, although signs seem to be pointing in the other, other direction. Yeah, and I think, you know, sort of agree with what you're talking about with the eroding the trust in the institutions, but sort of bringing it back down onto the level of what's actually going to happen, right? And how this is having a chilling effect on the information being communicated. And it is uh, sort of um, trying to put the genie back in the bottle, I guess, of, you know, systemic racism, a term being on everybody's radars these days. I think, you know, the idea that learning is harmful itself is is pretty dystopian right and that i was i was trying to talk a little bit about this idea of embodiment before and you know when i think about the ways in which sort of trying to shield white children from these uncomfortable emotions like if you learn about injustices in history right 
that that should produce an embodied reaction to it, right? That if we have a natural empathic response to human suffering as people who understand suffering, right? Like that's an embodied response. And here we are, you see the socialization of disembodiment in real time in an example like wow. this of, right? No, like how that's, do... <laughs> that's genius, right? So, right, you're in training you know, it's another way of saying, you know, not only do I, can I not learn about, you know, racism and systemic oppression and white supremacy, but I'm actually being trained to disassociate my body from my mind because yes. that's furthering the project of white supremacy itself, right? Yes. That's part and parcel yes. of both the benefits of it for white dominant whites, but also the harm of it. And so and we're starting that, that early. That is a harm. <laughs> that is a harm, right? It's not the same harm that other people, marginalized people are experiencing, but it is a harm to learn to become disembodied because think of all the ways that plays out in your life and makes you susceptible to harm, right? Of course, we know we're all born with ego defense systems. We learn ways to let in information and shut it down when it's too much. Like on some level, that's just part of how we function to protect ourselves, right? But we also have the capacity to build resilience, to be able to experience the full range of human emotion. And when you learn disembodiment, it's disempowering mm -hmm. to so many other experiences that you may have in your life. But nobody's talking about that. I mean, that's this is a kind of heady way of thinking about it, right? They, it doesn't make for a good campaign ad, and it's not something I expect to see, you know, out in, in the public discourse anytime soon. But yeah, on some level, right, this disembodiment is the deep harm we all suffer in these systems. Well, maybe, well, let's, let me ask you this. Is there anything, anything pop culture you want to talk about? Oh, gosh. I did just talk um, about Ted Lasso with Jeff Guin. Uh, I don't know. If, yeah. So. Yeah, if, I, mean, I was laughing because we, you know, when we were trying to figure out pop culture, I mean, like, I think I'm not the best uh, person here. I'm like, I'm not watching Bridges, Bridgerton. I haven't seen Ted Lasso. I did watch the Academy Awards, but I don't know that we want to, you know, touch that at all. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I'm kind of disconnecting from that. Yeah, and bit, I didn't, you know? I didn't watch it. I'm just, I mean, this is this is one of those things that. Oh, here's what we should talk about. Um, okay, Jenny, is April uh... the cruelest month for academics? <laughs> I think TSL is right. TSL said April is the cruelest month. I am more and more convinced of this in my life. Uh, February seems not great either, but um, April is just a cruel month. How are you surviving? Well, I have to tell you, there's something about the spring semester that even though trajectory wise, like, yes, everybody's, you know, falling apart toward the end of the semester, April in particular is complicated because there's, you know, a million different things happening. You're prepping for commencement. You're dealing with all the other typical challenges at the end of the semester. But I have to tell you, April has me feeling very hopeful. Great. <laughs> because days are getting longer getting warmer outside and summer is coming. Right. And so, um, I love a spring semester. Mm. I'll take a spring semester over a fall semester any day. So I cannot abide by the idea that April is the cruelest. Okay, month. good. Well, we, we are open to disagreement here on the annex. For sure. Yes, that's I, right. I am that's glad right. to hear that it's going really well for you. Of course, you know, I'm here in Texas and, uh, it is dry and hot yes. here most yes. of the time or a lot of the time anyway, when we're not having ice storms. So that is good. I'm, I'm glad to I hear miss it. Texas. It is. Oh, do you? Okay, good. Yeah. I, well, I, I'm sure I there's do. a lot of snow because Saratoga Springs is kind of 
Yeah, I mean, not right now, but we we have our share of it. Um, and I grew up in the Midwest, so I grew up with snow. But Houston, Texas, has my heart. <laughs> where Where did you grow up? This doesn't have to make the podcast, but I'm just. I curious. grew up in. Yeah, I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, okay. Wilmette. It's right on the other side of Evanston. Yeah. Okay. So great yeah. city, Chicago. Mm-hmm. Totally. Okay. Well. I'm glad we disagreed on April. It is a cruel, it's a cruel month for me, but um, I'm glad it's going going well for you. Oh, here's one thing we can't talk about. How do you feel about making daylight savings time permanent? I'm not a fan. I think if we're going to make something permanent, we should make standard time permanent, like the sleep doctors say. But then again, I have a thing about expertise. I know. I have to say as much as, and I mean, I, I say this as a person who's not dealing with children adapting or our animals or pets adapting. I know that is a big rub for a lot of people, but I'm always grateful when the time changes in the winter and I can wake up and it's not dark as heck outside. So, you know, I, obviously I will abide by the will of the people, but I, I do feel a little bit conflicted as well. I'm going to see how it plays out, but um, I, uh, it, it's like life-saving for me, even though the days get so short in the wintertime, it's life-saving for me to be able to wake up and, and see a glimmer of sunshine out the window. So I'm a little concerned about what that's going to do to my psychology. Yeah, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about daylight savings time or thinner time or, or whatever. But um, <laughs> I do think it's it's super me interesting neither. about yeah, the, the whole thing about crashes and like public safety. So if it's darker early in the morning, then you know mm-hmm. you got people commuting when it's darker out, and so that's that's a hazard versus like if it stays dark or if it stays light later in the day that might be good for restaurants and bars but of course there are some other downstream potential consequences for having people be up you know and out of the house and going to restaurants and bars you know also with terms of yes. crashes and car crashes and things so anyway i don't really know but i'm just i was just curious you know we we live in different regions of the country and so it's it's uh mm-hmm. it's funny how that geography affects things well, it, I mean, it's so true. Down in Texas, you do not feel the weight of a long winter the same way that you do when you're, you know, up in a place like Albany, New York, and those days get really short. I mean, that the first year that I moved here to New York was pretty brutal. Like definitely was dealing with that seasonal affect mood kind of thing trying to figure out ways to generate my energy. I just feel like, I feel like hibernation uh, calls to me this time of year. Like just, just hunker down. Don't go anywhere. Don't do anything, which is not a great feeling. I I like to be out and uh, about and doing things. Yeah. Well, I mean, we are in a culture that tells us to hustle, you know, all the time. That's why I'm a fan of the nap ministry Mm -hmm. on Twitter, which just sends out those. I'm in. I'm a very, very tentatively recruited uh, uh, member of the oh, nap good. ministry. Oh, good. Good. Well, I'm. I. Yes. Never have been a big napper. Just starting to explore <laughs> the pleasures. <laughs> yes. Well, I always tell my students that I haven't napped in uh, nine years, and coincidentally, our child is coming up on nine years old. So you can see maybe there's an association mm-hmm. there. But anyway, well, Jenny, it's so great to chat with you. And I really appreciate your work and your time today. So, So thanks again. Thanks to you, Dan. This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. A special thanks to Jenny Mueller from Skidmore College. Our producer is Oscar Rosario Caballero. Music by Lena Orsa.
The Annex is a podcast of the Queen's Podcast Network at Queen's College, City University of New York. Thanks to Joe Cohen. See you next time.